I realized I remembered two very sort of specific music uses from the first season. And it's not really the case with a lot of TV where I can tell you specific songs that were, were used in a specific season of TV. You're listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's Mr. Robot podcast. This week, oh, a lot happened last night on Mr. Robot episode three, and well, we have some theories. Then, we talk with a music expert, Vampire Weekend's Chris Bayo, about why Mr. Robot is the best sounding show on television. You don't even mention Phil Collins once. Ars Technica's Nathan Matice here. Thanks for joining us on this week's Decrypted. Explicitly, there will be spoilers. It is impossible to talk about what happened in this week's Mr. Robot without going into the specifics. And that's also one of the biggest challenges of following a show week to week. Sometimes we can get so lost in the specifics that we'll build out a show's entire future, whether or not the reality is going to follow. Case in point... I don't think Elliot Alderson is in a prison or a psychiatric unit of some sort. (laughs) The most prominent internet theory after that two-parter to start season two may have come and gone within a week. Now, nothing is off the table. Mr. Roat will almost certainly contain twists and turns that we, the viewers, just cannot predict. But the fact that we're all watching together now rather than people catching up means the internet theories may be on overdrive as we all simmer week to week with what just happened on the show. In honor of perhaps the death of the popular prison psychiatric ward theory, let me offer three more theories that could have some basis in reality, potentially no future, but maybe enough legs to keep us entertained until episode four comes along. Just because you beat a man's face to a pulp don't mean he gonna know what he don't. We're not animals. We need to find someone who can do that migration thing he keep talking about. All right, so Ray is not some cop or FBI agent or big brother at a psych ward. People like that just don't hire goons to go out and beat the hell out of their IT people. Now, Mr. Robot's gotten a lot of credit for being a very prescient show. It had to even delay its finale last year because the live-streamed suicide of executive James Pluff actually followed a real-life Facebook live-streamed murder. So what if, with Ray, the show isn't so forward-looking? Instead, it's looking back. Is Ray Ross Ulbricht? Is his little mom-and-pop website that he wanted Elliot to help with from episode one the Mr. Robot version of the Silk Road. Certainly gets expensive to give yourself dialysis every day, I would imagine. Remember, Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road folks, though never convicted for them, have many allegations about possible hits put out and other physical intimidation. Ray is not the cuddly, soft officer of the law or officer of the institution we once thought he was. Whatever you're doing, I don't trust it. You're panicking right now. But the minute you remove emotion from this, you'll do just fine. In a week of many big reveals, 
R.I.P. Romero. Angela's dinner stood out as a mind-blowing moment. Philip Price pulls the rug from out under her and reveals that, hey, you just had dinner with two of the people in the room with Colby. You may think they're nice. They're just as ruthless and heartless. Why E Corp hired Angela is one of the show's bigger unanswered questions, and we probably won't get a firm response anytime this season. This interaction makes it seem like it has to be somewhat lawsuit related, but prediction number two, I think they're just throwing us off the scent. Season one ends with that big epilogue where Philip Price is sitting cozily with White Rose, just chatting about the world. They seem to be aware of everything that's going on. If that's the case, doesn't Angela have a lot more value to E Corp as someone close to Elliot than she does as potential anti-lawsuit hire? Remember, this is the corporation that said they find $5 million in the couch cushions and they're willing to burn it in the middle of the streets. What's a little lawsuit? Instead, Philip Price is playing the long game. He wants to breed Angela into a ruthless cog within the E Corp machine for the moment when, for some reason, in some way, he needs her to do the shutdown of Mr. Elliot Alderson. You're jumping to conclusions. What about that all-safe guy? That's two murders in a row associated with this hack. They caught the guy. It was just some whack job. Just like after the premiere episode, we're left with a ton of unanswered questions. How did Romero die? Is someone trying to pick off all the people in F Society? Where is Terrell? I'm going to leave those big ones on the table and give you a smaller prediction. There is no way that Brock, the quote-unquote lone wolf who took out Gideon Goddard in the first episode, is really just a solo chaos actor. This is based more on how Mr. Robot has operated throughout the course of the show than it is on anything specifically about Brock. Every little detail in this series so far has been expertly woven into the fabric of the show. When Cisco was first introduced, he was hawking CDs on the street like your average amateur rapper. This week, we only really get one mention of Brock when Darlene is trying to reassure the rest of F Society that was a lone wolf, don't worry, no one's coming after us. Seems a little ominous. I don't know who Brock is associated with, but we haven't heard the last of him. And my guess is, he did not act alone. Coming up on Decrypted, we dive into the Mr. Robot soundtrack with Chris Bayo, musician of Vampire Weekend and the excellent solo album The Names. But first... Word from our corporate overlords! Alexa, when is the end of the world? Unless it collides with a very large rock or a future technology goes very wrong indeed, Earth is most likely to be destroyed when the sun swells into a red giant in several billion years' time. Everyone made a big deal about the use of Phil Collins in the season premiere, but last night's episode might have had two of the best music cues for the series to date, with more Dusty Springfield as we gloss over... New York City, following Romero and Mowgli's trip down memory lane. And then when Dom is getting ready in the morning, that's Johnny Cash Highwayman getting us all in the mood to go out and, I suppose, discover F-Society. The sound of Mr. Robot 
is just as important to how we experience it as the plot. Now, the Mr. Robot cast and crew are still rapping season two. So even though the person to ask about music might be Matt Quayle, the composer who made Mr. Robot's original score, we presume he's a little busy. Therefore, we went for the next best thing. Joining me on the podcast this week, it's musician Chris Bayo of Vampire Weekend and Bayo, who put out the solo record The Names in 2015. Chris, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Now, I will admit this because I forgot to do it before we got on the podcast, but I put the names in my top 10 for the Village Voice Paz and Jot pull last year. Really enjoy the album, and I'm absolutely looking forward to you passing through New Orleans on your tour this year. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been uh, really fun so far touring the record. I'm having a great time. Awesome. Well, well, I'm definitely going to ask you a little bit about that, but this is a Mr. Robot podcast, so I'd be remiss if I didn't start. Tell me a little bit about what you like about the show. It has such, like, a, the world of it, I guess, and the art of it, whether it's the score, the way it's filmed, the way it's acted. I think it came out fully formed, and I really love that about it. I uh, To get ready for our conversation today, I watched <laughs> the uh, first two episodes of the new season, and it's um, I, I live in London, and it's actually far and away the most beautiful day of the year in London right now and it felt a little bit inappropriate to watch this dark and dank techno thriller indoors during this incredible weather but I uh, still it brought me right back and uh, that's I guess a testament to how strong the world of it is is that I didn't really mind the fact that I felt like I was in a dungeon on a gorgeous day (laughs) Yeah, the the Elliot home in season two really is kind of prison-like. I, I think you really accurately described it there. Yeah, it kind of just it, it throws you right right in there right from the beginning. And uh, yeah, I really um I, I love the first two uh, episodes. And I guess I, I tend, when I watch TV, I try not to like dissect the individual elements too much, but I was definitely watching with... Uh, an ear to the music and, and seeing kind of like the heavy lifting that the the music does and, and just imagining if you dropped something completely different in there sonically, it would not really complement the world at all. But uh, I mean, the score is pretty fantastic. And uh, the like song selection, uh, also pretty incredible. There was actually, I mean, when you asked me about doing this, I, I realized I remembered two very sort of specific music uses from the first season. And it's not really the case with a lot of TV where I can tell you like uh, specific songs that were were used in a specific season of TV, but like the use of Twigs uh, two weeks oh, in the yeah. first season. <laughs> when Terrell has um, Scott Knowles' wife on the roof of that party. All I can tell you is you need this because you're dissatisfied. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, like, sexy and kind of sinister-sounding song. And uh, obviously what happens in that scene, I I don't know what the spoiler... uh... (laughs) Go for it. It's season two. If you want to talk about it, you can talk about it. Oh, it just, it it, it complemented that scene perfectly and uh, is something that uh, I kind of think about from time to time because you don't really know 
where Tyrell is going at the beginning of that scene. And then by the end, you're just so uh, horrified and, you know, the same song plays through it and it kind of, it works perfectly in the, that journey of that scene. Also, the other one is um, Queen, the song by Perfume Genius. Uh, I think they Mm -hmm. both kind of end episodes, but similar thing where it just fit the vibe of the scene perfectly. people in there I just told them what they wanted to hear they do an excellent job of soundtracking I I don't know about you I'm on Spotify a ton and I think the increasing way I can tell if a show is really seeped into my brain is I find myself subscribing to user playlists of here's all the songs that appeared on season X of whatever show it is and I think Mr. Robot uh, is one of the first shows that I found myself doing that for. Yeah, it's pretty uh pretty special. Is there like um I, I was I poked around a little bit, but is there also like a season one score? Yeah. Uh the composer's name is Matt Quayle and you know I I'm hoping I can touch base with him sometime later in the season, but they're still finishing the seasons for or still finishing the episodes for season two. I don't know if it's been released formally, however um, you know, so I was kind of like fishing around YouTube just to get an idea of his musical cues. You can you can find some of them isolated, but I would anticipate they'll put out the score at some point based on how much interest there's been. Yeah, they're pretty um, pretty incredible. I thought he, there there was that um, scene at the beginning of or not the beginning, but in the first episode of this new season where um, Darlene gives a speech, and it almost sounds like like a Radiohead ballad, like, uh, you know, like from like In Rainbows or something like that. Give me your phone. Why? I didn't post anything. Give me your phone. Going back to what I was saying before, the, the world of the show is just so strong. Well, I want to ask you one more question about the world of the show, because I know you lived in New York City for a long time. As someone who is now a New York expat, does the show take you back there? Does it feel familiar when you're watching it? Yeah, it definitely does, and there are certain streets and and shots that bring uh, bring me back. It makes New York feel a bit more evil than uh, my memory (laughs) of it, but uh, yeah, it definitely takes me back. I always like seeing New York on TV since I moved away from it. I mean, one of the most prominently shown settings for television and film, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk specifically about some more music. Now, I know you've had songs appear on television shows before and appear in various soundtracks. Uh, You know, A-Punk comes to mind from your Vampire Weekend days, and Sister of Pearl was on the FIFA soundtrack recently. Is this yeah. something you seek out actively, or are those opportunities kind of presented to you, and then you know you're considering them individually? Uh, they kind of get presented more so than uh, something that I uh, would actively pursue. I think with the FIFA soundtrack, I had no idea how big of a deal um, <laughs> it was, and then you know the it happened. I guess the game and soundtrack came out maybe a couple weeks before my record came out, but like 
the day that it was announced, uh, I had people tweeting at me like, you should be honored to have your song on FIFA. <laughs> and then other people tweeting like, uh, I think you're unworthy of the FIFA soundtrack. <laughs> Which, I, I, um, it's not something that I was particularly aware of. But then now, I mean, I'll be in like, a situation where I meet someone and they ask, you know, what I'm, what I'm up to. I tell them about, you know, my record. And that's always the first thing that people say is that, oh, you have that song on the FIFA soundtrack. And I think it's a very cool thing. I think it's a pretty, like, dope association to have just because when you think about how many people play that game around the world and there's, you know, whatever, like, 40, 45 songs they pick for it, I feel very lucky that Sister of Pearl was one of them for... Uh, this last edition of it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. The thing, I, I haven't played the game, so I haven't had that uh, necessary excitement. The guitar player, uh, George Hume, who plays with me, like, plays live guitar with me, mm-hmm. he plays it, and I was thinking how, like, stress-inducing or, like, horrible it must be to be playing a video game and then be reminded of, like, <laughs> a song you have to play on stage. He seems okay with it, though. He doesn't seem to mind it too much. <laughs> Well, like like you said, it's a big honor. So hopefully that trumps any stress. And I mean, you're you are a proper football fan. It, it is completely makes a lot of sense to me that your music would end up on a FIFA soundtrack at some point. Yeah, I think it's cool, and uh, it's been placed. The track's been placed a little bit in uh, some other TV shows, uh, but I haven't seen any. It, it's in this movie that's coming out next month called The Space Between Us, and I think I'll go see that. I mean, I, I do remember kind of while we were touring the first Vampire Weekend album, the movie I Love You, Man, the, like, Jason (laughs) Segel and Paul Rudd, it had Oxford, comma, and maybe another one now that I think of it. But we all went uh, to the movie theater to see that, and that was, uh, it's always pretty exciting. Uh, I mean, sometimes I'll be, like, seeing a movie and I'll forget that something was approved for it. Like, I saw Boyhood, which had the song Blake's Got a New Face from our first album on it and i realized i mean like when it happened it just took me completely out of the movie like because <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting it but yeah it's it's exciting it's a fun thing to, and lucky thing to have happen i mean i would assume when those type of opportunities are presented they are just such good opportunities that more times than not you want to approve it is is that kind of the case yeah definitely i mean speaking for myself and my own record i i made the record exactly how I wanted it to be. I wouldn't change a note or a thing about it. So that's the main like level of control for me as an artist. And then if I get the opportunity to have as many people as possible listening to something that I made, I'm, I'm almost always going to say yes. Cool. Well, then, I, you know, I'm officially starting the campaign. We got to get you on the Mr. Robot soundtrack at some point. Uh, I would love that. Well, I want to ask you, you mentioned scoring before, and you know, you're someone who has dabbled in a wide variety of musical entities. You know, you were a radio uh, director when you were in college. You DJ, you produce, you're a multi-instrumentalist. Is composition something that you have dabbled in or would have interest in down the line, it, especially if it comes to TV or film? Yeah, definitely. I've actually um, scored two uh, indie comedies Um one was called Somebody Up There Likes Me, and another one was called Seven Chinese Brothers that a filmmaker named Bob Byington made. And uh, there's something I really love about uh, 
trying to get the most out of a scene musically, try and help the scene along. And it's definitely something I'd like to do more of. Um, some of the, I mean, I don't know, some of my favorite music in the last couple of years that I can think about is something that was on a TV score. Um, I really, I'm a big fan of the show, the Nick. And I think oh, nice. similarly to Mr. Robot, it has such a very strong world. And that one is pretty shocking because it takes place, you know, in the early 1900s and the score is like, acid 303 techno <laughs> and it's some of my favorite electronic music of the last few years and you wouldn't think the two would go along well but it's like perfect and I, I listen to the soundtrack to that all the time um also i'm from uh, a square mile town in suburban new york and kind of the other guy who grew up in that same town he's a bit older than me but he does he scores tv and uh I would be remiss if I didn't give him a shout out, but his name is Nathan Barr and he scores the show, the Americans, which is also a show that I love. And the music to that is absolutely incredible. So I, I listen to stuff like that and I find it very inspiring and it's something I could definitely see myself doing later on in life. You come from one of the most uh, musically talented small towns in New York that I can think of then. He he might put out, if Mr. Romot doesn't have the best soundtrack, it's the Americans. They might be one and two in my mind. When I met him, I got to go to his studio and he showed me where he, he does it. And a lot of it is he'll write something for a synthesizer and then try and like get a similar sound without synths. And he's a cello player and he just had um, kind of the nicest studio and the nicest equipment <laughs> uh, almost of any studio I've ever been in. So I was a, a bit jealous of that. It was pretty awesome. And I imagine that just works an entirely different part of your musical brain as opposed to when you're writing songs for either Bayo or Vampire Weekend. Yeah, you're definitely fulfilling someone else's vision. Um, I think in a way it's not that different. Like when I've written music for the two movies I did, you're you're executing the director's idea. And then if you're writing a bass line for a song that someone else wrote, you're kind of just trying to fulfill – uh, the song and serve the song to the best you can. So in a way, those two are a bit more similar than than making my own record where I write everything and then it's my vision. And I actually find I, I like them equally. I, I like having a project where it's entirely my vision and uh, other projects where I can help other people with their vision. One last question for you, because uh, I would regret it if I didn't ask. You're on tour coming up, especially a stop here in NOLA. So you know, what's next for you musically? Are you going to carry out this album for a little bit while longer, or are you already kind of thinking about what your next project might be? Yeah, I'm going to be touring kind of through the end of the year, and that'll be uh, most likely the end of playing shows on this record. Um, it's been incredibly fun, but I definitely have been feeling inspired to write new stuff. I mean, I, I finished this record almost two years ago, and I've been both sort of thinking about what I want to do next and then, you know, other projects that I want to be involved in. So I've been writing stuff with way more frequency than I had before and having a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think I saw you put out a, a single earlier in the spring, so I, I look forward to kind of following along as you continue to, to drop hints about what might be next. Great. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, Chris Bayo, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nathan. It was good talking to you. That's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks as always to the Audio Network for providing all the excellent music you heard throughout the episode. And a special thanks to my guest this week, Chris Bayo of Vampire Weekend and the excellent solo record, The Names. 
He'll be touring the U.S. this summer, so keep an eye out for tour dates in your neck of the woods. Join us via Skype. Make sure you're following Decrypted wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or directly through RSS. If you got questions, comments, or thoughts, feel free to reach out to us, either through the Ars Technica forums or via email, social at arstechnica.com. Just put Mr. Robot in the subject line. Until next time. Jacob R is throwing up in his grave, right?